0: Welcome to the Tech You Should Know podcast, and thanks for supporting us at commando.com by reading articles, getting newsletters, and by listening to these podcasts. And happy new year from all of us at commando.com. And we went back and picked out a great show from you from earlier this year. This is called Mostly Harmless, or the mystery that the internet can't crack. And you're going to learn about a hiker who was found deceased and the mystery on how they tried to find his identity. And I want you to stick around till the end because we have a a big update for you and we'll tell you about that. Meanwhile, enjoy this podcast from the Tech You Should Know archives. And again, Happy New Year from all of us at commando.com.
1: A mystery is totally taking over the Internet. A backpacker who's found dead in his tent in July 2018 remains unidentified to this day. The John Doe started hiking south on the Appalachian Trail from Harriman State Park in New York in April of 2017. On the trail, he was known as Denham because he wore jeans while hiking. Later, he called himself mostly harmless, and he sometimes used the name Ben Billamy at the hiker hostels. Two hikers found the man dead in his tent in the Big Cypress National Preserve on the Florida Trail on July 23, 2018. The campsite held few clues. He didn't carry his cell phone. He didn't have any credit cards. He didn't have any identification on him. But he had about $3,500 in cash. Facebook groups are sharing clues and Reddit users are doing the same. And I read a great piece at Wired About Mostly Harmless, I was just fascinated that here we are in 2020 when there is no way to have any real privacy. A man can go for a hike from New York to Florida for 15 months on the sometimes very busy Appalachian Trail. He meets a lot of people along the way, has his picture taken, and no one has any idea who he is when he dies. But perhaps new DNA sequencing will be able to help out. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So joining us here on this Tech You Should Know podcast is the editor-in-chief of Wired, and he's the writer of the piece that's called A Nameless Hiker, In Case the Internet Can't Crack. His name is Nicholas Thompson, and you don't want to miss this podcast. It's so fascinating about what's going on with this case and how people are sometimes sending him like 20, 30 clues a day. But again, you still have no idea who he is. Perhaps we will soon because of this high tech DNA sequencing that we're going to get into. So stay right where you are because when we come right back from this quick message, and a special thank you to our partners who make this podcast possible, we're going to dive right into the case. we're speaking to the editor-in-chief of Wired, and he's the writer of the piece that's called A Nameless Hiker, In Case the Internet Can't Crack. His name is Nicholas Thompson. So, Nick, let's just jump right into it. But first, I have to ask you, what drew you in to do the research and write about Mostly Harmless?
2: Oh, so I got an email. I have a random email tip box. And a note came in one day, and it said, hey, there's this mystery of a man found... Uh, in Florida, deceased in his tent who hiked the Appalachian Trail. And that message came in maybe two months after I had spent a few days hiking with my oldest son, partly on the Appalachian Trail. I've spent a lot of time hiking different parts of the trail. I've spent a lot of time in the woods. And the other detail that struck me was that the person who tipped me off to it said that the deceased man had been an engineer in New York who'd wanted to get away. And of course, I work at WIRED. I write about engineers. I write about engineers in New York. And I write about people who are conflicted about technology, who love it, but have seen some of the dangers of technology. So combining those elements into a mystery struck me as profoundly intriguing. And then there was the other element, which is the internet is really good at solving mysteries. Put a little detail on Twitter, and people usually figure it out in five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. And somehow this guy 's photographs had been online, thousands of people had looked for him, and no one had any idea so i have to I had to explore this.
1: You did a fantastic job walking through the entire process of the details of this guy. He started in April of two thousand and seventeen at a park just north of New York City. What was he carrying? well, so he started
2: out with there are a couple of things that struck me about what he was carrying so he started out strangely hiking in jeans, which suggested people that he was an inexperienced hiker. And in fact, he got the nickname Denim very early on in his journey. And he had a backpack. It was a big backpack with a big rain, red rain flap. And it was much too heavy for the trail. And I've headed out you know, for multi day trips. And you always want to, the, the line I remember the most is line up exactly the bare minimum of what you can think on the trail. And then take half of that. <laughs> and the reason is you want your pack to be light. It slows you down. You feel the weight every step. And yet his pack was full. I think it measured 50 pounds or something. Someone weighed it at a scale at a hostel once. So he's got all kinds of clothes. He also has notebooks where he's writing down little notes about an online game called Screeps, making notes about food and dietary content. Um, he's got hiking poles, a pair of flip-flops. So he's got basically the standard stuff you take out on a trail, but he's got too much of it, and then he doesn't have two things that most people take. He doesn't have identification, and he doesn't have a cell phone.
1: Which is very unusual for anybody, especially if you're going to hike the Appalachian Trail alone, that you'd probably want to at least document pictures at least and then have some lifeline back to somebody else. But then again, if you want to have this whole digital detox and maybe you're just fed up with technology, maybe it would be kind of a great release. So you mentioned that he was known by denim at first because he was wearing jeans. And then people along the trail, they started calling him Mostly Harmless?
2: Yeah, actually the name I just love. And so there are two origin
1: theories for that name.
2: The one that I think is true is that there was a campfire one night and he came to sit down with other people and maybe somebody expressed some worry. I can't remember the exact story. And he said, oh, I'm mostly harmless, meaning (laughs) I'm not dangerous. But there's also a hint of danger when you say mostly harmless. And so from then on, he acquired the name Mostly Harmless. And then Mostly Harmless is also the description of the Earth in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And we know that this hiker um, loved science fiction, so he probably loved Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He may have picked it up from there. I ended up calling the story mostly harmless because that's what he was known by at the end and because I love the sort of poetic sense of it. But other people who've looked for him also have referred to him as Denim or as Ben Billamy, which was the false name he used occasionally to sign in at hostels.
1: So do people along the Appalachian Trail, do they not use their real names?
2: You know, I didn't actually know this. Whenever I've met somebody on the Appalachian Trail, I say, hi, I'm Nick. (laughs) But it turns out that it's not uncommon for people to give what are called trail names, to just say, hey, come up with a nickname or something else. The woman he spent the longest time hiking with, there was a 65-year-old African American woman from Virginia who he hiked with for 150 miles. She didn't give her name. She went by Obsidian. So there are a lot of people out there who use trail names. It's, It's fascinating. It's a subculture I didn't know about, despite having spent some time out there.
1: So this woman that he hiked with for you say 150 miles, I understand from your story that he she taught him basic camping skills like how to make a fire
2: Well this is the extraordinary thing is he's out on the trail for I guess for 15 months uh, and certainly at least in the beginning he didn't seem to know that much which means that he wasn't somebody who'd you know going grown up you know hiking with his dad or his mom or going to camp in Maine or the Smoky Mountains or wherever. It seems like he's somebody who this is really his first major experience in the wilderness, which is
1: striking and haunting. How many miles do you think he walked before he ran into Obsidian? Oh, um, well, he's, he must have hiked from,
2: you know, from he either started at Harriman State Park or Bear Mountain State Park. There's a little ambiguity And then he hiked, that would have been down in the middle of Virginia. So what's that? 800 miles, 900 miles? I'm not sure. But quite a ways and a lot of nights. How do you not know how to start a campfire?
1: You got to stay warm. Okay. Then he runs into a trail angel. And who Mm -hmm. were these people? and, And who was, who was this trail angel that he ran into? And what did she find out? the trail angels i didn 't know this term
2: existed either, so a trail angel is somebody who helps through hikers who maybe lives near the Appalachian Trail or in her case the Florida Trail and has a reputation as someone who will let the hikers stop by their house, take a shower, get a you know a hot meal, um, somebody who loves the connection to people from the trail and' it's just a kind, generous spirit. so the woman I talked to is named Kelly Fairbanks, and she met mostly harmless hiking on a road in florida and she was driving and she saw him and she she's a trail angel she was actually going to meet another hiker so she stops and says hello you know presumably she says i'm kelly he says who he is she says do you need a shower do you want to come to this dinner he says no she offers to <laughs> help him with a map he says he does not have a phone i mean that's the other reason why you would have a phone a phone is not just useful because you can call people it is useful because you can find out where you are <laughs> it's very easy to get lost in the woods Clearly, people were able to hike long distances before there were cell phones. But now that there are cell phones, it makes the process much easier. So she talked to him. She sort of felt an attachment to him. She had said she has younger brothers who she cared for, and she was worried about this, about this gentleman. And so she remembered him, and she remembered his face. And then when his body was discovered you know, some months later, she was the one who told the Collier County Sheriff's Office, which are the people who had discovered him, who told them who it was.
1: So she told him that he was heading down to Key West. Is that right?
2: He told a lot of people that he was heading down to Key West. He said a couple of things. He said that he was heading down to Key West. Why? Who knows? I mean, it's a place that lots of travelers go to. It's the end of the country if you're heading south. Um, he said he had a sister. Some people think that he had a sister, or told people that he had a sister in Sarasota, Florida. Though other people think he said Saratoga. Um, so he may have had a relative there. He may not have. Um, And we don't know. I mean, one of the biggest mysteries about him is that he was discovered in July of 2018 at this place called Noble's Camp in Florida. And the last time he had been seen by anybody since then is, I believe, April of 2018. So it's really not clear what he was doing in those three months. There's a hypothesis that he just went to Noble's Camp and stayed there. Hypothesis that maybe he walked further south and then walked back north. It's not clear. We know you can build a map of his location because of different people who spotted him, who took photographs of him at campfires and hostels. You can build a map of where he was pretty much from, you know, summer of 17 to the spring of 18. And then it's a little mysterious from the spring of 18 through July of 18 when his body is
1: discovered. So six months later and 600 miles south from when he met Kelly Fairbanks, the trail angel, on July 23rd, 2018, Two hikers headed out into the Big Cypress National Preserve. And when we come back, we're going to tell you exactly what they found.
2: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.
1: Welcome back to Tech You Should Know. We're speaking with the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, Nicholas Thompson, which if you haven't read this story, it's phenomenal. And we're talking about a nameless hiker and the case that this Internet just can't crack. So, Nick, now the hikers are heading into the Big Cypress National Preserve, and then they stop at a place called Noble's Camp. What exactly did they find there?
2: Yeah. So this is a strange, strange episode. So these two hikers start hiking in the late afternoon, maybe this 15 mile hike. I spoke to one of them who said, you know, it was an insane time to hike, right? It's Florida. It's July. It's hot. It's muggy. There's snakes. There's alligators. It's not, it's not, you know, hiking New Hampshire in the fall, right? It's hiking Florida in July. It's a mess. And so they go in for, some reason or another one of them wears you know the wrong shoes his feet hurt like heck and then about eight miles into the hike they get to this place noble's campground and they see a yellow tent and oh, look, there's another person they have a, i don't think they encountered any other people on the way but i'm not positive on that detail and they see this tent and they see the boots propped outside and then something smells and something feels sort of strange and so they go to the tent and they look up the rain flap and they see mostly harmless and He's dead. And so they call 911 and they say, I think we found a dead body. The police hustle there. They're actually not that far from a highway, which is one of the other tragic details. If Mostly Harmless had wanted to get help in his final days, he was only five miles from a highway. The police come, they identify the body. And the body has become remarkably thin. He's five foot nine and weighs, I think, 83 pounds in the autopsy. And so these two hikers find him. Police come. And then that's where this stage of the mystery begins.
1: Because as you say, it's normally easy to find somebody's name when, when, and associate with a corpse. But this guy had no phone, right? He had no ID. Yep. He had no credit card. Um, were yep. there any, any missing reports?
2: No, none. I mean, this is the crazy, crazy thing about this story. Normally, if sheriffs find somebody, they'll... They'll have a wallet in their pocket, or there'll be, I don't know, a book with their name in it, or there'll be letters, or there'll be something, or there'll be a phone. But there's nothing. There's nothing that indicates who this person is. And so the Collier County Sheriff's Office, they say, well, this is a surprise. There's nothing here. Let's put his picture online, and maybe we'll figure it out. And so they draw a sketch. They post it. Kelly Fairbanks sees it, says, oh, I met this hiker on the trail. Soon she and others start sharing in other Facebook groups. And soon there are dozens, hundreds of people who have recognized this person, but no one actually knows his real name. Lots of people have small clues about him. Lots of people remember him, but no one knows. You know, Some people think his name might be Ben. Some people think just know of him as mostly harmless. And we're now, what are we? We're you know, July of 2018 to November of 2020. <laughs> no one's gotten close to figuring out who he is.
1: But they, you know, so they did all the usual things, right? They checked fingerprints, they did a DNA search. Yep. Yeah. So they, they, did, they did fingerprints,
2: right? But fingerprints, you know, not everybody is fingerprinted. If you've committed a crime or fingerprinted, you know, if you're in the military, you're fingerprinted. But he doesn't match fingerprint database. They run facial recognition analysis on his photographs. That doesn't lead to anything. They look for missing persons reports. There's no match. You know, they, they check for tattoos, they check for everything they can. And then the, you know, once they've shared his identity online, the Facebook group, you know, a Facebook group founds, it now has 5,000 members. You go into it every day. They're trying some other clue, right? I'm getting tips every day because I wrote that story. Someone has just sent me an email about an LLC registered called Mostly Harmless in Brooklyn. And maybe there's a connection or people call me and say, Hey, he looks like, you know, my long lost cousin. And so there've been hundreds of leads, hundreds of tips, but none of them have panned out. None of them match. The sheriffs don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. The Facebook group doesn't have any idea. It's just a continued perplexing,
1: perplexing mystery. Okay. So you mentioned he was five, eight, five, nine, and he weighed 83 pounds. But I think what was, what's fascinating, and he's between 35 and 50 years old. But they found yeah. they found $3,500 cash in the tent with this guy.
2: So they found $3,500 of cash with him. And other people on the trail remarked that he had carried a thick wad of cash, suggesting a few things. Number one, that he had begun the trip, we don't know this for sure, but it seems likely, with lots of money, say like $10,000, $15,000, right, all in cash. And so as he went down the trail and purchased things, he would buy it in cash, perhaps, because... He wanted to be completely untethered from modern society and credit cards. It's highly risky <laughs> to carry that much cash. What if your pack gets stolen? What if you, know, you leave the cash out and it gets rained on? Right? It's, a, it's complicated to hike with that much cash. Another question it raises is one of the big ones about the story, which is, did he intend to die on the trail? One hypothesis is that he had a terminal illness or... He was just profoundly upset and lost in life. Maybe he had mental illness. I don't buy that. But these are theories that people have. And then he went out to the trail expecting to meet his end. He wanted to die. And he went out there. And um, that's what happened. So the other hypothesis is that something just went wrong in Florida. And that he wanted help and for whatever reason couldn't get it. Couldn't find someone else. He couldn't find his way out. Maybe he was lost. Maybe he became delirious. Maybe he got sick. But there are a lot of uncertainties surrounding why he died and what happened to him at the end.
1: Were there any, you you mentioned in the beginning, when we first started talking, that he was um, carrying books and journals where he was taking notes. Any clues in any of those books? So the clue is this. He's writing about a game called
2: Screeps, right? So Screeps is a game that programmers use to kind of build worlds and in some ways compete with each other. And so he's building models that presumably he would implement when he came back and had a computer again. And so that suggests that he expected at some point to leave the trail. Why would you write notes about a game you want to play if you don't intend to play it? There's also the clue that there must be an account for a scripts user that was active until roughly 2017, and is now inactive. And so people have tried to search through, you know, clues about Screeps, Screeps, Screeps community. They've asked people who are, who spend a lot of time playing Screeps, trying to figure out, um, you know, whether they can track them down. But as far as I know, and I've asked a bunch of the people who play Screeps and a bunch of people who've worked on this, as far as I know, it hasn't really led anywhere.
1: On the autopsy report, what did they list as the cause of death? And did they find any type of um, pharmaceuticals or drugs or anything in his his system?
2: They found really nothing. They found that he had had ibuprofen and an antihistamine, but no no drugs. The autopsy report says cause of death unknown. Um, There are other reports that say he essentially died of starvation, but there's no Indication, right? So, one of the hypotheses that I've heard is that he had, say, for example, terminal cancer, and he knew that he only had a year to live. And, you know, why go through the pain of all the treatments? Why not just go out on the trail? But if that's the case, there was no evidence in the autopsy. The autopsy didn't say he had advanced colon cancer or this had metastasized. So,
1: um, it's very, very peculiar. And this is what's strange about this whole case, Mostly Harmless. And this is what has everybody so enthralled on the Internet, is that what's going on? I mean, look at the times that we live in. Look at all the advertising tracking. I mean, all the algorithms that are just know exactly what we are thinking before we even think it. And when we come back, there's an interesting twist that's being taken right now in Mostly harmless's case that maybe technology can help us figure out Who exactly this is by a different type of DNA sequencing. So stay right where you are. You don't want to miss this. Hey, welcome back. We're speaking with Nicholas Thompson. He's the editor in chief of Wired Magazine, and he wrote this fantastic story about a nameless hiker and the case the internet can't crack. So, Nick, let's talk about what technology is doing now as far as going beyond just normal DNA sequencing to find out maybe who Mostly Harmless is.
2: Yes, this is the other reason I was drawn to the story as editor of Wired, right? I mean, you can imagine the conversations inside of Wired, right? Like, this is a story about a missing hiker. Why is it about technology? And the answer is, well, A, it's a captivating mystery about how the Internet tracks somebody down, but also – It involves cutting-edge genomics. So what you can do with DNA, the first thing you can do, and this is what we're all familiar with, is that you can look for a DNA match, right? You can take a portion of somebody's DNA and compare it to similar markers in a giant database of everybody's DNA who's ever been taken. But that will really only tell you if the person you're looking at, if their DNA is in the database or if a parent or sibling. But what if they're not in it, would have no parent or sibling is in it. Then what can you do? Well, so then you can do an analysis to try to identify relatives. And this is utterly fascinating. And here what you do is you take the whole DNA sample of Mostly Harmless or whoever you have and you compare it to the DNA of everybody in a public database. And so by that, you can say, okay, wait, he shares about X percentage with this person suggesting maybe they're fourth cousins. Oh, and here's someone else who's in the database who's maybe... A third cousin. Okay, so now how does the third cousin relate to the fourth cousin? And if we can figure out how they're connected by looking at family trees, maybe we can get closer to finding his family. Or maybe you could look at his DNA and say, oh, wait, his DNA matches the DNA of a lot of people who live, who knows, in northern Minnesota. So therefore, it's probable that his parents were from northern Minnesota. Now, they may have been both born in northern Minnesota and then moved to Texas and had the baby. And then you would, you know, the baby would always think of himself as a Texan, even if he has northern Minnesota DNA. But it gets you closer. This was famously used for the first public time in the case of the Golden State Killer, where they were able to solve a many decades old cold case by analyzing the DNA of the, you know, the serial murderer and then tracking down relatives of his and then identifying a weight this guy who's related to people whose DNA is related to the DNA of the killer is a possible suspect. Okay. It must be him. So it's using that same process to try to figure out who mostly harmless is. And they've been doing this now for a couple of months. No one can figure out, or they won't speak publicly. The Collier County Sheriff's office is working with a company, a Houston company called Authram. And no one will say from either the CCSO or from Authram exactly where they are in the process But my suspicion is that a month or two from now, they will have identified Mostly harmless's family. But they may not get there. You don't 100% figure it out. He may not have enough close relatives. There may not be a clear enough family tree to solve this case.
1: See, and what I thought was fascinating about this is that the organizers of that Facebook group that have been searching for Mostly harmlesss I mean, they're the ones who reached out to Othram uh, that company yeah. in Houston that you mentioned. And then the founder, uh, David Middleman, said, wow, this is really something that that we should try to help out with because normally you said it's like, you wrote that it's like normally like $5,000 to do something like this. So yeah. what did they get from Mostly Harmless that they used to analyze the DNA?
2: So they used a, a bone fragment. So the Collier County Sheriff's Office sent it to OTHRAM. OTHRAM then analyzed it to make sure there was enough DNA in the sample. And then OTHRAM, you know, put it into this machine, which I describe as something that looks like a giant washing machine made by Apple. It's this strange, big, you know, (laughs) block, white block. Um, It analyzes the DNA. gives you the full readout. And then it's a question of analyzing it to all the DNA in database.
1: Wow. This is really something then they did they use the, the service GEDmatch as well?
2: So GEDmatch is the database in which all of the DNA samples, um, which they're allowed to analyze, are kept. So it's not like Authram has access to every DNA sample ever taken. Right? If you go to 23andMe and you have your DNA sampled, Authram can't access that. You still have privacy protections on that. But many people take their DNA samples and put them in GEDmatch so that it is available for public searching. And they do that because they may want to do their own searches, or maybe they want to help law enforcement or for whatever reason. So there are many DNA samples in this database that often can look at, but not all the DNA samples ever made. The way the, way the metaphor I used in the piece, which when I finally came upon it clarified it for me, is that imagine a book washes up on the shore, and you don't have the title and you don't have the author, a million pages long normal dna sequencing is the equivalent of taking one page of the book and comparing it to all the other pages of all the books that you know are written in the giant library and seeing if there's a match this page matches a page in a giant library you have the same book right the dna of one person matches then there's a direct match that's normal dna sampling what autumn is doing is saying oh there is no direct match let's analyze all the words and all the sentences and all the punctuation and compare it to the writing style and all the other books and we can figure out what time frame it's from. Maybe we can figure out the author, and then we can narrow it down.
1: It's really fascinating. Your whole piece, I was mesmerized. I normally well, thank you. The story is crazy. It, it is. And and normally I can't read anything. Like if I have to scroll down more than once and a half, I'm like, okay, hmm, out of here. <laughs> but well, you, I- you totally – your writing is spectacular. The story is phenomenal. Uh, I'm it's anxious – You know, I'm anxious now to know who Mostly Harmless is and why exactly did he think that he could walk on the Appalachian Trail in jeans and bring along Um, Mm flip-flops? And what was the purpose? And maybe somebody in his family, they may know the answer why if they can contact somebody and then we'll all sit back and go, oh, now we know why he did it. What does your gut say after studying this for so long? If you had to, if you had to speculate, mostly Harmless's gig, his background, yeah. what he is, who is this guy? Well, you know, it's
2: so perplexing because the story I wrote in Wired has had you know, 1.5 million readers. Right, it's a lot of readers. Everybody knows a couple hundred people, right? There are only 350 million people in this country. How is it that? no one has recognized him or at least how is it that no one has recognized him and told anybody who's made it public right it is possible that the story circulated among someone who didn't email me didn't tell the facebook group didn't tell the sheriffs Um, but it is absolutely astonishing so back to your question what is my speculation i think that it's possible that everything he told people on the trail was false It's possible he doesn't have a sister in Florida. It's possible he didn't work in tech. It's possible he didn't start in New York. It's possible his name had nothing to do with Ben Billamy. It's possible he wasn't from Baton Rouge, which is something he told people. But my instinct is that most of that is true, that he probably was from Baton Rouge. He probably did have a sister, maybe not in Sarasota. And I suppose if I had to take one hypothesis, my hypothesis is that there was something, he was very sick, and he was, he headed out knowing that this might be the end of his life. Because I don't, I i just have a hard time imagining him, you know, well over a year into his hike, being at that campground in Florida, so close to civilization, so close to other people and not, not trying to get away unless, unless he wanted it to end. But I could be entirely wrong. You know, the story this is most often compared to in people I talk to is you know, Chris McCandless into the wild. And, you know, it's a different story, right? McCandless similarly goes out into the woods trying to get away from everything, but he gets trapped, right? He dies maybe because he eats something bad, but he gets trapped by a rising river that he can't cross. He doesn't know enough about Alaska to know that when you cross a river at one time of the year, it doesn't mean you'll be able to cross back at another. I don't know if there's a parallel with Mostly Harmless because he didn't seem trapped. There wasn't a reason why he couldn't get out of Noble's campground. So I guess I'm going to go with the terminally ill hypothesis. But honestly, there are 20 different explanations, and I wouldn't be surprised by any of them.
1: So we'll have to wait for your follow-up piece. Well, I mean, and
2: not only that, but for your listeners, you know, if you know who he is or you have a suggestion, you can email me, nxtompson at protonmail.com or I'm on Twitter at NX Thompson. I get lots of tips. I try to follow them all up. You can read the story on wire. You can look at his pictures. There are lots of clues. There's a Facebook group. Someone, someone knows who he is. But that person, those many people haven't read the story or they don't recognize him. There's a hypothesis that maybe he weighed several hundred pounds more, you know, when other people knew. Maybe his face has changed. Who knows? But there has to be a reason why no one has recognized him yet. And when the mystery is eventually solved, if it is, there'll be a whole nother mystery that then opens up.
1: Hey, Nick, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
2: Amazing story. Thank you for, thank you for all the nice words about the story. Thank you for looking into this. And maybe one of your listeners will solve it.
0: Well, one of our listeners didn't solve it. And we are very disappointed in you guys. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Uh, But the mystery is solved. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, here's an update. And it starts in Brooklyn, believe it or not, at an apartment. A A landlord goes to check on his tenant who hadn't paid rent in like six months and found the apartment to be, well, almost like the guy just stepped out for lunch. All his clothes were there. There was many computer parts and screens And even his wallet and his New York identification was there. And that got him a little bit suspicious. And the name on the IDs was Vance Rodriguez. Now, this case, actually, we released this podcast in mid-November, and it actually was starting to blow up. Uh, As we mentioned, the Collier County Facebook page had a note a page about the missing person and then also wired came out with this huge article and interest in the case went crazy and so one of uh, rodriguez's former girlfriends who lives in louisiana known as tuggy was 100 percent sure it was vance rodriguez uh now they had dated for more than four years she described rodriguez as kind quiet and intelligent but believes his Quiet and reclusive nature contributed to him going a long time without being identified. It turns out that he was not that nice of a guy uh, at times. In mid-December, several of Rodriguez's friends reached out to the Collier County Sheriff's Office to tell investigators that the mystery hiker was indeed Vance Rodriguez. And Rodriguez's parents are still alive, along with his twin sister and older brother, He is included in his grandfather's obituary from this past summer, and his family has not responded to requests for comment. Uh, One of his former uh, roommates in that Brooklyn apartment said there's a reason that no one reported him missing, uh, implying that he just didn't have many friends and he wasn't really a great guy to hang out with. At any rate, the mystery is solved. His name was Vance Rodriguez. And thank you so much for listening to the Commando Tech You Should Know podcast. We look forward to bringing you another one next week. If you haven't already subscribed, do that and you will get these downloaded automatically to your device. And don't forget to check out the Commando community where you get behind-the-scenes access to Kim's articles and chat rooms and forums. And you can even watch the show as we record it live for that, just go to getkim.com. That's getkim.com and we'll see you next time.